And we now come to the preaching of God's Word. And so if you would, open your Bible to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. If you're a a visitor with us this afternoon, we are working through the Gospel of John verse by verse. And so we find ourselves in just the next portion of Scripture. I haven't selected this or, or picked this out of the whole Bible to preach this morning. It's simply the next portion of Scripture In the context of the Gospel of John, we're going to be homing in on verses 15 to 17 and the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so let's go ahead and begin by reading this portion of Scripture, John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. It's sometimes said that a church like ours doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And that reveals a fundamental misunderstanding of who the Holy Spirit is. In fact, what it does is it completely disregards the true work and ministry of the Spirit, defines his ministry in terms the Scriptures don't, and suggests the Spirit is only operative in churches with typically really bad theology. And what's more is it creates an image of the Spirit that looks nothing like the Father and the Son, which is what? Idolatry. Since just as the Father and the Son are one, so too is the Spirit one with the Father and the Son. God is one God expressed in three persons, and each person of the Trinity is one with the other. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, though different persons, and though having distinct roles and functions, nevertheless bear the same likeness. And as we'll see, the Spirit's role is to glorify Christ. That's why the Spirit isn't typically given a place of prominence. The the role of the Spirit is to make Christ prominent, and that to the glory of the Father. But having said that, let's highlight the true work and ministry of the Spirit and give Him glory as a member of the Godhead. It's the Spirit who administers the effectual call through the preaching of the gospel in salvation, It's the Spirit who affects the new birth and regeneration. It's the Spirit who does the work of sanctification in conforming us ever more into the image of Christ. It's the Spirit who enables our obedience and service. It's the Spirit who enables us to refuse the desires of the flesh. It's the Spirit who empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry. It's the Spirit who empowered the apostles in their earthly ministry. But let's even consider the moment we're in, the moment we're in right now. It's the Spirit who has given the Scriptures. It's the Spirit who illuminates the truth of the Scriptures. I am now coming to you as one who is both indwelt by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. And I am preaching to you the word the Spirit has given in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit will illuminate the truth to your mind. He will put the glory of Christ on display. He will encourage, convict, comfort, and edify you. 
and he will cause you to delight in the display of the, of the glory of Christ that you see. Then consider the fellowship to come. You will have been filled with the Spirit. You will then serve by the power of the Spirit. You will also minister to each other with the spiritual gift the Spirit has given to you. And as such, you will build one another up by the Spirit. And so what's the fruit of the Spirit's work among us? It's obedience to Christ, faithfulness to his word, a commitment to the honor and glory of God. It's the presence of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's, it's love for the brethren. It's real biblical unity on the ground of the truth. And so on. And so we can unequivocally say that the Spirit is incredibly active in our midst. That the Spirit of God is rightfully honored in this church. And that we most definitely have the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Our Lord has been comforting the disciples, and he's comforted them in two ways. He's pointed them to their heavenly future in the Father's house, and he's pointed them to fruitful ministry, not just beyond his departure, but because of it. And that sets the table for the promise of the Holy Spirit, that though he would be leaving them, it was to their advantage that he go because the Spirit would come and would take up residence within them. Another helper was on the way, and he would supply them with everything needed to complete the task entrusted to them. Now, the, the link between our text and what's before is twofold. One, Jesus has just promised that they would not only do the works that he did, but they would do even greater works. And for that, they would need divine enablement, the power of the indwelling spirit, and two, he has just promised that if they ask anything in his name, he would do it. And for that, they would need to be obedient. And that too calls for divine enablement. And so Jesus makes an announcement that though he is departing, there is going to be another helper. And that helper will come and he will ultimately work in and among them to give them everything they need to fulfill the task that God has given to them. And to set the expectation on what we're going to see, I'm going to give you two headings. First, we're going to see the evidence of love in verse 15. And with that, I'm going to further the discussion on love we began back in John 13, 33 and 34. And then second, we're going to see the enabler of love. In verses 16 and 17, at which time I'm going to highlight the indwelling ministry of the Spirit as a reality that's inseparable from the new covenant. And so if you're taking notes, jot down first the evidence of love. The evidence of love. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, it's important to note that salvation isn't by works. No one earns their way to heaven. The only one 
with the merit to enter heaven is Jesus, and he earned it through his perfect obedience. And so when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he isn't talking about meriting heaven as though we earn heaven by our obedience. And that's because deeds of righteousness can't undo the stain of sin. Our sin must be dealt with and atoned for. Justice must be brought to our sin. And Jesus accomplished that justice at the cross as the satisfaction of the Father's wrath for our sins. And so when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he isn't talking about earning our way to heaven. So what's he saying? He's saying the evidence you have come to know him savingly is that you obey his word. Obedience is the fruit of a saving relationship with Christ. Why is that? Because through regeneration, we're brought to new life in him, and love for him is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, such that love for Christ is the evidence that we've been delivered from the penalty and power of sin and have therefore been saved from the wrath to come. And so, we don't obey to be saved. We were saved to obey. The Apostle Peter says it like this. We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 and 2. And this is really a reoccurring theme in this discourse. The reality that that love is evidence of love, or rather that obedience is evidence of love for Christ. You'll see it just a few verses down, for example, in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And so Jesus is stating again that evidence of love for him is obedience to his commandments. Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And so we have to keep the word of Christ as evidence of our love for him, not not merely the precept, but but the the word that expresses the, the totality of who he is. Look at John 15, 10. There, our Lord says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so obedience to the word of Christ, to his commandments, is the means by which we abide in the love of Christ. And then look at chapter 15 and verse 12 and following. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And so obedience is evidence of love for Christ. And Christ perfectly models this in his love for the Father. Look at verse 31 of chapter 14. There our Lord says, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And so the Son puts his love for the Father on display by obeying the Father, by obeying his word, by obeying his commandments. Love and obedience are inseparable. Elsewhere, our Lord says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, John 4, 34. 
And so Jesus experienced his very sustenance in performing the will of God. Elsewhere, he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father, John 8, 29. Jesus loves the Father with perfect love and obeys the Father with perfect obedience. Now, there's where the distinction comes into play, because obviously, even as those who are in Christ, born from above, who have the Spirit of God, we do not love God perfectly, and therefore, our obedience is imperfect. But that said... The direction of our lives is toward obedience to the word of God. The overarching trajectory of our lives is toward righteousness, toward the the commandments of Christ, the the honor and glory of God. And so we can see that the, 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 the general pattern of our life is toward obedience to Christ. So the evidence of love is obedience. But let's talk for a moment about the essence of love. And let's pose the question, what is love? And as I said when we addressed this last time, love isn't a feeling. Any more than humility or gentleness are feelings. So what is it? Well, it's, it's patient. And so it it willingly bears up under the faults of another. And it's kind. So it bestows unmerited blessing on those who don't deserve it. What else can we say about love? Well, it doesn't brag. And it isn't arrogant. So love isn't proud. And it doesn't act unbecomingly. So love is considerate. And it doesn't seek its own. So love is selfless. In addition, love isn't provoked. So love isn't irritable. And it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So love is forgiving. And from there, we can say that love takes no pleasure in sin. That it takes great delight in the truth. That it refuses to unnecessarily bring anything negative to light in another that it's relentless in extending the benefit of the doubt, that it always remains optimistic, and that it's stubbornly persevering. In fact, we can even say this, that love never fails. Now, what did I just do? I basically just described the way the Bible describes love from 1 Corinthians 13. And when 1 Corinthians 13 describes love, it describes it by what it does and doesn't do. And so I submit to you that love isn't fundamentally, primarily, or inherently emotional. Instead, it's a commitment to seek the greatest good of another and always results in action. Now, having said that, do feelings play a role in love? And if they do... What role do they play? Well, first, we we probably need to dispense with the word feelings. Feelings are fickle. Feelings are flimsy. And so we could get rid of the word feelings. And we could probably also do away with the word emotions. Although I'll be a little less dogmatic about that. But we don't need that word either. And so what word can we use to describe that aspect of our 
of our being that's involved in love that isn't the action part of it. We can use the word affections, where we define affections as deep and enduring and fueled by our convictions concerning the truth. And so if love is a commitment to seek the greatest good of another, always resulting in action, then we should have affections that correspond to that commitment. We should have affections that, that want the greatest good of the other. Affections that are consistent with the commitment that we've made to pursue that good. But even then, the intensity of our affections can fluctuate. And so our affections aren't the determining factor in our love. Instead, our mind and our will are. We, we choose to love. We choose to seek the greatest good of others. And that means that, that love needs to take place even when? When I don't feel like it. Love is a matter of obedience. And so we need to be committed to the greatest good of others and, and seek that good in love. And we ought to have affections that are consistent with that commitment but when push comes to shove, it's not our feelings or affections that determine the outcome of our actions. It's the decision to pursue the love of the other person. And so I think we can say this, that love isn't a feeling because love doesn't originate in the affections and love isn't love until it's expressed outwardly. Love merely felt isn't love at all. And so as you consider the Lord's teaching here, what he's saying, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments, I want you to consider whether you love the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to see Christ glorified? Do you want your life to glorify Christ? Do you desire to walk in obedience to his word? Can you see that your life is marked by obedience? Have you prioritized walking in step with the Spirit of God? Are you putting the Word into your heart? Are you getting yourself into the Word? Are you striving for, for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep his commandments. Obedience is the evidence of love. But to love this, this way, what do we need? If we're going to love the way Christ is calling us to love, what do we need? What must be there? Divine enablement. And so if you're taking notes, jot down second, the enabler of love. The enabler of love. Look at verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. So in lieu of the absence of Christ, another helper would come. The Greek word for helper is parakletos. That's why the, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the paraclete. It refers to one who is called to someone's aid, and that's why it's rendered here helper. And there are two Greek words for another. One means another of the same kind. 
The other means another of a different kind. Which one do you think is here? Another of the same kind. Because the Spirit bears the likeness of the Father and the Son. And the sending of the Spirit is sometimes attributed to the Father. At other times, it's attributed to the Son. Here, Jesus will ask the Father, and the Father will give. So the Father is pictured as the active agent in the giving of the Spirit. And the same thing is expressed in verse 26. Look at that. Where Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So there, the Father is the active agent in sending, and when he sends the Spirit, he sends him in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Son. But look at chapter 15 and verse 26. There, Jesus says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. So in John 15, 26, it's not the Father who is pictured as the active agent in sending the Spirit. It's the Son. And yet he sends the Spirit from the Father because the Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. And so both the Father and the Son are active in the sending of the Spirit. The Father sends the Spirit in the Son's name. The Son sends the Spirit from the Father, and the Spirit comes accordingly. And what you have there is an example of how each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are each active in all the works of God. In everything that God does, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each person is active. Now look back at John 14, verse 16, and the end of the verse, and notice the purpose of the Spirit being sent. It says that he may be with you forever. And so with the sending of the Spirit, there would never be a time when the Spirit is taken away from them. The Spirit will be with them forever, in contrast to the departure of Jesus. Because Jesus has been among them for three years, but now he's departing. That will never take place with the sending of the Spirit. Now that statement there is intriguing. And it's intriguing because of the statement at the end of verse 17. Sort of near the end of verse 17, you'll note that it says there, he abides with you. So the Spirit was already abiding with them. And so in one sense, Jesus is saying that when the Spirit comes, he will be with you forever. And yet at the same time, he's saying the Spirit at present abides with you. And so though the Spirit was in some sense with them, in another sense he wasn't yet. And the other sense is directly tied to the sending of the Spirit. And we're going to define that a little more in a moment, but for now we can at least say this much that Jesus was presently with them in this moment in a way the Spirit wasn't. So yes, the Spirit was with them, and we'll explain why in a moment. But Jesus was with them in a way the Spirit wasn't, and when Jesus would be removed through his death, resurrection, and ascension, the Spirit would come and would fill the gap, as it were, 
he would fill the, the shoes of Jesus, only it would be even better than having Jesus with them because the Spirit of God will see will be in them. And as we'll see in a moment as well, Jesus will actually declare it's to their advantage that he go and that the Spirit come. And notice the way the Spirit is described. Verse 17, that is the Spirit of truth. Now, why is that significant? What did Jesus say back in John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth. So Jesus is the truth, and he sends the spirit of truth, and that strongly suggests that the ministry of the spirit revolves around what? The truth. In fact, let's survey what our Lord says about the ministry of the Spirit. Look down at verse 25 of John 14. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Spirit, one of his chief ministries is to teach The Spirit is a teacher. And what does he teach? He teaches the truth. Look at John 15 and verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. And so one of the chief ministries of the Spirit is to testify concerning Christ. And he will testify concerning Christ through his people. He did through the apostles, and he is now testifying through us now. The Spirit teaches, he testifies, again, concerning the truth, since Jesus is the truth. Look at John 16 and verse 7. There our Lord says, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So another chief aspect of the ministry of the Spirit is to what? Convict the world. To bring conviction about the truth about sin, about righteousness, about coming judgment. That is one of the primary ministries of the Spirit to convict the world. Look down at verse 12. Our Lord says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So another aspect of the ministry of the Spirit is revelation. The promise the Lord makes here is a promise that the Spirit will reveal the truth to them. A promise that was fulfilled in the completion of the New Testament. 
as the Spirit is primary in inspiring the Word of God. The Word of God is God-breathed. And it's the Spirit working in the human author and carrying the human author along so that every word that, that is written down is not, not a result of man's will, but men carried along speak by the Spirit of God. And then verse 14. Again, our Lord speaking. He, referring to the Holy Spirit, will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So another chief ministry of the Spirit of God is to glorify Christ, to put his glory on display, to make him known, to exalt him. And when you put all of that together, I think we can say this that where the truth is most prevalent and where Christ is most glorified, the Spirit is most operative. That where the truth is most present, Christ is most glorified, the Spirit is most operative. And conversely, the opposite can be said. Where the truth is least prevalent and Christ most dishonored, the Spirit is least operative. In fact, it's evidence of worldliness. Look at the next part of verse 17. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. The world cannot receive the Spirit. As soon as the world receives the Spirit, it is no longer the world. To receive the Spirit of God, you must receive Christ in the gospel. You must be born from above. You must turn from your sin and believe on Jesus Christ. You must look to his finished work on the cross as the only basis and ground of a right standing before God. You must believe on his resurrection from the dead. It's by virtue of believing the, the message of the gospel that you receive the Spirit. The world can't do that in its own strength. It is incapable of receiving that. Because the world is the realm of mankind organized in rebellion against God by none other than the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And it cannot receive him because it does not see the Spirit or know the Spirit, our Lord says. Now, the Spirit is obviously spirit. So he's invisible. Therefore, to see him, to perceive him, is to see him as he is, as the spirit of truth. It's to love the truth. It's to live in light of the truth. They can't see the truth. And they reject the truth. And this is consistent with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so the world, consisting of the natural man, is unable to receive the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness to him. He rejects them. 
He doesn't understand them, and he can't understand them unless the Spirit of God turns the lights on. But, next part of verse 17, you know him because he abides with you and will be future tense in you. Which is to say that at the particular moment prior to the cross that our Lord spoke these words to his disciples, the Spirit was with them, but he was not yet in them. He was with them, but he was not yet indwelling them. In fact, I want you to look down at verse 25 for a moment and notice what our Lord says because he uses very similar language, if not the same language, as he does in this statement referring to himself. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Now think about where the Lord was in relationship to the disciples. Was he in the disciples or was he outside of the disciples? Clearly he was outside of them. Jesus wasn't yet in them. And he would be. We know he would be because when the Spirit came and they were indwelt by the Spirit, both the Father and the Son come to them in the Spirit and make their abode with him. And so he wasn't in them, but he most certainly was with them. So how are we to account for this? This careful distinction the Lord is making at this point in redemptive history where he's saying to the disciples that the Spirit is with you and will be in you. Well, maybe this will help. At this particular point, are the disciples Old Testament saints or New Testament saints? Or we could word it like this. At this particular point, are they Old Covenant saints or new covenant saints? The reality is they're old covenant saints. Why? Because the new covenant hadn't been established yet. The new covenant is established in the blood of Christ. It's ratified in the blood of Christ. Jesus hasn't yet died. And so the disciples are still existing under the old covenant. Even John the Baptist, for example, is he a new covenant prophet or an old covenant prophet? He's an old covenant prophet. He ministered prior to the arrival of the new covenant. And so the new covenant hadn't yet been established. It was established by the blood of Christ on the cross, and Jesus hadn't yet died, though his death was just hours away. And so we're seeing in this statement, a distinction in the way the Spirit worked prior to the New Covenant and the way that he worked following the New Covenant. The Spirit taking up permanent residence in the believer is a New Covenant reality. And to see further support of this, turn back to John 7 for a moment. Because our Lord is saying the exact same thing in John 7. Now, you have to understand, Jesus is preaching to the Jews, and he's preaching himself. This is a moment of preaching in verse 38. 
And he makes this statement as he's preaching to the hearers before him. John 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow, future tense, rivers of living water. And so Jesus promises the listener prior to the new covenant that he who believes in him from his innermost being will flow, future tense, rivers of living water, anticipating the coming of the Spirit, anticipating the indwelling Spirit. And then John gives us an explanation in verse 39, commenting on the Lord's statement there and says, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, implying they hadn't yet, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What's the glorification of Christ referred to? His death, resurrection, and ascension. And so the Spirit at this point hadn't been given in the manner consistent with the new covenant. And therefore, indwelling was not a reality at this particular point in redemptive history. The indwelling spirit is connected to the promise of the new covenant. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 27. This comes in an extended section that prophesies of the coming new covenant. And Ezekiel says this in verse 27 of chapter 36. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So in connection with the prophecy concerning the new covenant, God declares in Ezekiel that he will put his spirit in his people, a reality that came to fruition after the cross of Christ. And so how are we to understand salvation and sanctification in the Old Testament? Well, they needed regeneration all the same. They, 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 they were born dead in their trespasses and sins. They had to be made alive. They had to be brought to life. And so the Spirit of God had to bring regeneration to them all the same. But when he did, he didn't indwell them. Indwelling is a new covenant reality. Instead, he was with them. And so he, he worked on them from the outside or worked in them from the outside. He was empowering them and sanctifying them from the outside to live a life that obeys the law of God. But now, in accord with the new covenant, regeneration always results in permanent indwelling indwelling that will take you all the way into eternity and will last for all of eternity, where the Spirit takes up permanent residence within us and sanctifies us from the inside, enabling us to love Christ, obey His commandments, and bring glory to His name, even to the extent that it is better to have the Spirit of God indwelling you than to have Jesus seated right next to you. And so listen, you have a source from heaven, the Spirit of God who is in you to empower you 
to live the life that you are called to live. He has joined you to Christ. And you have union with Christ through that so that Paul can say you are in Christ. And he is in you to empower you to obey the word of God, to guide you into the truth, to build you up in the truth. He is there to sanctify you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, and to ensure you get all the way to the end, all the way to the finish line when you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he will say, well done, my good and faithful slave. You have everything you need. Christ doesn't just call you to obey. He goes to the cross. He dies, rises from the grave, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then sends his spirit to empower you to live the life he's called you to live. That ought to put wind in your sail. To live in a manner that's consistent with the honor and glory of Christ. And so we see the evidence of love. And the evidence of love is what? It's obedience. And it's the Spirit of God who enables that obedience. He enables that love. He puts that love within your heart. And you begin to live a life that cons that's consistent with the, the, the teaching of Scripture and the honor and glory of Christ. And so we see the evidence of love and the enabler of love. But let me leave you with this. Maybe the Holy Spirit has always kind of been a mystery to you. And you feel like within the context of the Trinity, you don't really quite understand or perceive the Spirit as well as you maybe do the Father and the Son. Well, think about this for a moment. Last time we saw what? That to see Christ is to see the Father. That the Son is the supreme revelation of God. And that the more clearly you see Christ, the more clearly you see the Father. And so what can we conclude? If you want to have a clear picture and understanding of who the Spirit is, Behold him in the Son as well. The Son is the supreme revelation of God. And as you more fully and more clearly see the Son, you more fully and more clearly see both the Father and the Spirit. The mystery should be removed. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. Three distinct persons, but one in essence. And the more fully you know and see the Son, the more fully you see the Father and the Spirit. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the richness of it. We are so thankful for the sending of the Spirit. So thankful for the new covenant. Father, thank you for the indwelling spirit. Thank you for the way that he strengthens us and sanctifies us. Father, help us to live in a manner worthy of you, worthy of Christ and worthy of the gospel. Glorify yourself in us and among us. And we pray, Father God, that we would live with greater commitment to your word. 
for the honor and glory of Christ we pray. Amen.